We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Check 25. Systemic inquiry shall accompany investment commitments in the technosphere. Thereafter, end-to-end producer responsibility applies. And this, I've just realised, is our penultimate principle, 25 out of the 26 principles. It is indeed. And, well, there's a few technical terms there, and I think you have a definition for the technosphere from Jan Salazovic. Which goes like this. All of the structures that humans have constructed to keep them alive, in very large numbers now, on the planet, houses, factories, farms, mines, roads, airports, shipping ports, computer systems, together with all its discarded waste, and, and he estimates that the bulk of the planet's techosphere is staggering in scale with some 30 trillion tonnes, representing a mass of more than 50 kilos for every square metre of the Earth's surface. So wow. that's a staggering thought. So we built a lot of stuff. In effect, with a few possible exceptions, we're talking about all of human life on the planet and its effects. Yeah. I mean, like tarmac, for example, which with the intensity of rainfall now contributes to flooding. And, right. You know, so... Well, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. I think I want to just quickly interrogate what we mean by investment commitments. We're talking about companies declaring the intention to do something like, yeah. for example, put out a new piece of software or gouge out the side of a hill or something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, at present, the way in which, I mean, taking particularly the big tech, as it's come to be known, Silicon Valley and all the rest of it, you just shove something out. And mm. this is designed to disrupt, disintermediate, change the way in which something works, which, of course, in some respects, absolutely great, because it may well be replacing something which, you know, doesn't work very well or or works quite badly. But I think that's not really the point, is it? The point is more that, you know, in recent years, there's been this fetishization of disruption as being a great thing, but actually that disruption has had some fairly dreadful effects across societies, you know, which we've seen particularly with, for example, Facebook, but also to some extent with Google as well. All of those and indeed Amazon and, of course, Uber and Airbnb and various other bits and pieces that get shoved out. And then it's like, okay, humanity, we're making loads of money. We're terribly clever. 
you pick up the pieces and you know if some of the pieces happen to be human lives as indeed they are indeed a lot of people's human lives in the case of social media then that's just not the way to go about these things you could you can't just chuck something out so when we're talking about investment commitments in the technosphere we're talking about mostly companies intending to sort of gouge something in one place and dump it pollutingly in another place. And what this principle says is that systemic inquiry shall accompany investment commitments in the tax yeah. So a company or a group of people, a government or whatever, is thinking of doing something, but it'll engage in systemic inquiry before it does it. Now, as I understand it, systemic inquiry, I mean, there are things that we've talked about in all these episodes, you know, being clear about what what are the boundaries of what we're talking about you know what yeah. what what is the technosphere yeah drawing in multiple perspectives yeah so that's you know all the different people involved using the tools and techniques of deliberation in particular we've talked about the openness of process i think the abortion referendum in ireland was a great example there yes and this is all clothed in humility with regards to knowledge so this is the beautiful scientific center of systemic inquiry is that we go into this thing not knowing you know people might say well i think obviously we need to do this you know this is the answer yeah it's it's obvious we can all see it yeah but systemic inquiry says well no we don't actually know what the answer is before we've found out what the problem is yeah exactly and in a way of course i mean going back to something else amazon unbound how does amazon work how does it assess its new products and services, well, one of the tenants is that, you know, leaders, managers usually, right, because they continually seek to disconfirm their beliefs by courting diverse perspectives. Yes, Uh, it's embracing a provisional nature of knowledge that the knowledge may be completely turned on its head. It looks this way, but you can't be too... Sure. So you're you're always checking to see, are you on firm ground or not? Yeah. And we talked there about, you know, off you go, here's a mining company, right? It's going to blast in to get cobalt or some other much needed material that we're probably all using ourselves right now out of the Chilean landscape. Well, before you do that, if you check on just how much water you're going to need, then you're going to be taking virtually all the water from the people that live there. We're getting into the context of this principle. You know, why does the world need there to be systemic inquiry to accompany investment commitments in the technosphere? Well, it's almost impossible to know where to start because so many investment commitments in the technosphere have created such vast uh, arrays of pollution and and damage that that's how we've ended up in this climate and biodiversity crisis yeah one thing that struck me is that a way of getting our head around just what a big deal this is i think was to it sort of struck me that people living in the country have this closeness to the land Mm. to some extent which people in the cities perhaps don't have and you know there's that classic fairy tale of the country mouse and the city mouse Mm. but We're seeing, according to the UN, over half the world, so we've passed that tipping point, half the world currently live in an urbanized context. Yeah. So that's half the world with a sort of perspective that is not particularly connected to the land. And they expect in the next two to three decades, so that's by 2050, 
that to be 68%. In fact, there are other estimates high, as high as 70, uh, over 75%. Yeah. So that's a vast mass of humanity not particularly connected to what is breaking down with regards to the biosphere. And obviously, a lot of that will be across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. But in terms of what those cities will require in terms of construction, what resources will they be gouging out? Where will those resources come from? What will they cost to to transport to these cities? I mean, this is a big global systemic question, isn't it? Yeah. Does that all stack up? People are drawn to cities for work. You know, they'll get more money. For example, in China, you can have as many in some cities as 80% of the workers there who are unregistered for health and housing. So they're sort of pushed to one side. Well, are they actually having a better time than Mm. when they were working on the land? I don't know. But just this notion that we get them into employment, often high-pressured employment, very long hours, and they get paid more, therefore this is better, is not entirely... Well, I suppose crazy. also the drift to cities is probably accompanied by a certain amount of technological literacy. You know, the people, as they come to cities, they get things like iPhones yeah. and so on. And this is one of the things that John Norton was talking about in the last series, that these companies, like, they, they are so massive and they have so much control, you know, between Google and YouTube, wasn't it something like 90% or 95% of all search goes through Google and YouTube? I mean, it- That's another point, that with big tech as it is, the way it works is that, you know, particularly if you're the first mover in a particular market, then you'll become a de facto monopoly because the nature of the internet is that, you know, we all go to one place. Mm. Now, at the time that Google was starting up, if we'd done a systemic inquiry and thought about where this might go, and I suspect also it would have been important to think about where this is going as it goes along, because you, you can't predict everything. So you're then saying, well, hang on, do we want a monopoly in search engines? Do we want a monopoly in distribution of everything via Amazon? You know, monopoly is very dangerous things, by and large, very bad for economies in the long run. If you take another form of investment, we currently experience E10 petrol coming through our pumps, less polluting less CO2, although it does increase your fuel consumption. So that seems to be a good thing. But in terms of where that has come from, how much of it has come from chopping down forests mm. uh, and you know taking all of that carbon sequestrating out of the equation and substituting it for a fairly small improvement in petrol emissions. And so rather than just the EU coming up with a policy, off we go with the policy, you know, let the market rip. Um, you hold a systemic inquiry and say, well, you know, what, how what is does it- that systemic inquiry look like? Well, I, th- I think for a kickoff, who, if you like, holds the systemic inquiry? Who has the constituency for doing this? So you would have an independent grouping doing that inquiry who are used to, I mean, to use the words, you know, have fostered their systemic sensibility. Mm. And so they think and act relationally. You're talking about something that would be intergovernmental or attached to a 
global body or how like how does this thing actually appear well if you think about a good uh, analogy here is rail crash inquiries which right, are, which, which we've talked about before yeah. we've talked about in the past and they are conducted by an, an institution that has been set up by government um i can't remember what it's called it you know rail safety board or whatever mm. it is um but that institution is independent of government. You right. know, there's, there's, there's no there's no fiddling and inserting, as with Sage, politicians, civil servants, mm. and your mates onto this. And there is a tradition in rail crash inquiries that quite like systemic inquiry, where you are looking for an understanding as to what has caused this. Not in the immediate sense of, you know, the driver as attention wandered. Well, why did the drivers, you know, and so on and so forth. You're looking and genuinely seeking for the underlying systemic causes. Right. So you're doing a sort of a root cause analysis and you're using your five whys and you're getting into the sort of the nitty gritty of how, how this system works. Yeah. And understanding and being reflexive and thoughtful and reflecting on what's happened and what's happening, seeking fresh distinctions and perspectives around the subject, looking at it in context, looking at it in the round, looking at it holistically. There are several pages in our book Mm. um, which describe systemic design principles and the way in which you would run these things. And on the one hand, there's a lot to it, as indeed there is to a rail crash inquiry. But on the other hand, all of this is perfectly doable. Mm. And I suppose, as we were saying before we started recording, you know, if this could have been done with regards to, for example, coal mines, there was no shortage of opposition to both coal mining and coal use in the 19th century. You know, it was very clear that the eastern side of town got the wind and therefore got the fumes of coal fires and coal burning, yeah. and therefore became the poor parts of town, whereas the western parts of town had the prevailing wind to keep them nice and clean and free of such pollution. It's so interesting to reflect, isn't it, that coal has been the biggest cause of our climate crisis that we are now in. And, you know, if you went back then and said, Okay, yeah, there's this. I mean, it, it, in many respects, it's a wonderful fuel. There's, there's a book mm. out by Jeremy Paxman, curiously, about the history of coal. I gather it's quite a balanced book in some respects. That if we went back to then and said, well, yeah, there's this wonder fuel, I mean, it has the potential to power all these industries and create all this economic growth. But also, you know, the chances are those industries are going to be dreadful employers. An awful lot of people are going to suffer and die from the pollution. And by the way, in the long run, you're going to create a situation on the planet, which means an awful lot of it becomes uninhabitable and a lot of people will die. Living conditions will decline. Well, at that point, would you have said, yeah, 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 carry on with coal, you know, sort of reckless? Or would you have said, well, let's look at other ways of powering industry and non-polluting ways of powering industry? And yes, 
they will take longer to come on stream. And yes, there won't be as much money to be made by a very few people. But it does seem to me that might well have been a much better outcome than the one. I mean, one it certainly could have put, put a cap. I suppose there are so many competing agendas going on in, in an industrial environment in terms of, you know, if all, all through the 19th century there were wars and obviously there was colonialism and the idea of having a soft touch on the world was not really in vogue. I mean, it's more of a thought experiment, but it does make the point that doing these inquiries first, whilst the technology is being developed, and then continuing to inquire as the technology is pushed out to the world and observing how it's doing. It's classic course correction. You know, it comes back to our sailing metaphor mm. that you're going along and as the winds change and the currents change and the temperature change, you need to correct your course. Well, we've certainly needed many course corrections in relation to modern technology. And you just take social media and where it's got to now. And all of the reasonably good analysis of it creating polarization, teenage depression and mm. suicide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, by goodness me, we need a course correction on that front in very, very short order. Yes. Something you said a minute ago about the design centre of systems thinking, particularly with regards to its analogy with rail crash inquiries and so on, that you end up with design principles. And we were talking a couple of weeks ago about how McKinsey had done this sort of report yeah. design centred businesses, such as Apple and Nike, and had mm. discovered that businesses with design at their centre typically had a 12% year on year edge over businesses that didn't. And this was a systemic view of the business. And I was thinking about how that played into, I mean, we all obviously are intimately familiar with Apple at this stage, or many of us. And one of the principles that Johnny Ives, who designed various Apple products, including the iPhone, he was a sort of follower of Dieter Rams's design principles. And there's 10 of them, which I'll quickly read out, and I'll pin the longer passage in the show notes. But his 10 principles are that good design is innovative. It makes a product useful. It is aesthetic, meaning it's nice to use. It makes a product understandable. It's unobtrusive, honest, long-lasting, thorough down to the last detail. And number nine is key for us, is environmentally friendly. In fact, I'll read that one out. Design makes an important contribution to the preservation of the environment and conserves resources and minimizes physical and visual pollution throughout the life cycle of the product. And the final one is that it's minimal, less is more, which is the famous dictum. But this idea of design at the center and its environmental consciousness, I think, seems to map very well onto our systemic ideals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a personal bugbear of mine minimizes physical and visual pollution. I would add noise pollution to that mm. as well. So th- these are great design principles. And the way in which you would extend that is to say, well, this now needs to be opened out because this is fine. Apple and Nike and anyone else doing that internally, that's great. It's going to improve your products and it's going to improve your profits, and it's going to improve the customer's appreciation of them. 
But we now need to open that out to say, well, and if we take the environmentally friendly bit, just how environmentally friendly is it? Mm. Um, Because actually Apple's products per se, whilst they may be less worse, are certainly not environmentally friendly in well in terms of rare metals and, and so, on, yeah. so forth so this is great but it needs to be opened out to public scrutiny and i think also you're saying that there needs to be a degree of not just of voluntary virtue signaling but of accountability and pressure yes and back to uh, the out of sight out of mind world in which we live that accountability has got to be felt and experienced and meaningful yeah. so we were going to talk about uber and the london assembly with in relation just let's just reiterate our principle that systemic inquiry shall accompany investment commitments to the technosphere so uber appeared in london and we all got great cheap rides, I think blissfully unaware that their model was basically to drive taxi drivers out of business by subsidizing fares so that the Uber drivers offered cheaper fares. But then the assembly stepped in and in a sense, they were looking at the system and they were thinking, well, is this what we want? Issues arose. So so here's this wonderful piece of technology, chuck it out. In many respects, great benefits, um, better use of cars, better use of people driving those cars, a much more flexible arrangement, a much easier to use system than hailing a cab in the street or booking a mini cab. Tick, 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 tick. But the design principle that's not down here under the Dieter Rams list, what about the staff? What what about the employees? What about the drivers? And so what happened was that the conditions that were being applied to Uber drivers were very casual. Well, okay, you've got this job, but if there's too many of you, then bad luck. You know, a number of you are going to fall out. There's no provision for sick pay or pensions or any of that sort of stuff. Like in so much of the gig economy, this extreme casualisation of labour where the pictures of workers turning up to a compound at the beginning of the day and then the foreman picking out who he wants. It does. I was just thinking it's reminiscent of early 20th century or late 19th century factory lines. Classic film on the waterfront, I think it's called. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Marlon Brando. Exactly. And I mean, what a reference to casualisation of labour. And actually, yes, those conditions are applying in many places uh, around the world today. Then watch on the waterfront. But the Greater London Assembly and the Executive Mayor of London picked up on the fact that the employment conditions for these drivers were not good. So they then, and this was a course correction and very commendable, said, well, we're not going to continue to give you a license to operate in London. And of course, they had those powers, which is Mm. important, a precursor to all of this. We're not going to continue to give you a license unless you bring in some reasonable employment conditions. And so that's what happened. And Uber is now continuing. It would have been much better if that had been thought through. And that is not something of an emergent or unexpected consequence. And the whole way in which the system was set up was based on 
the extreme casualization of labor hmm. much better if that had been thought about before it had started. And if you look at the stories of Uber in India, particularly where people's, you know, investing comparatively a vast amount of money in buying cars, but then there being too many Uber drivers. So mm. people who invested all this money, borrowed a load of money, being thrown on the street. I mean, I don't know what's happened to them now. I don't suppose the outcomes for many of them have been very good. Now, it's not difficult to do this and to say, well, you know, we need to take stock. Yes, this thing is not going to come out tomorrow because we're going to think about it first and we're going to try and get it as right as we can. But that's what we need to do with any... I suppose you also envisage this as an ongoing process. As Uber, for example, engages with a population of people and drivers Mm. and people get used to calling an Uber or getting an Uber on their phone, you know, mm. through the app or whatever. There are all these stakeholders who have an interest mm. and who can be represented. And, you know, it doesn't need to be a, a union. It can be simply going out and talking to them. But it probably is down to the city that is subject to the company to do the systems thinking here rather than the company. Because the company, as we've said on many occasions, has its basic premise of, of profit. Yeah, and so, so that's what it's, you know, Turkey's voting for Christmas, as it were. You, mm. you, you know, yeah, it's not it's not the company's job and, and it cannot do it independently and it cannot represent the interests of the community, civil society, drivers, staff, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, it needs to be ongoing. If you contrast that with Airbnb, another wonderful innovation, I've used it. I'm sure many people listening have used it. But then it's had these consequences of hollowing out, you know, Barcelona being the classic one, of hollowing out the city, of turning it into just a tourist destination Mm. rather than a place for people to live and work and have a thriving community. And Barcelona is, is attempting to sort of rein back from that. You'll find it in small villages around here, where which have been hollowed out by Airbnb and people making money out of, you know, buying up houses and pricing out locals from those houses in order to make money out of Airbnb. When you say hollowed out, you mean that what we're talking about is flats and houses that have a transient population. So the community basically has a relationship to them that is either they're benefiting economically or if they're not engaged with them, they don't really have any benefit. There's just They're just people who are sort of transient no, so, their, their, you know, their you, brand. Yeah, and you'll find streets which used to be completely populated by people that lived in them. And now you'll find streets that has virtually no one there that lives there. And you can say, on the one hand, well, you know, bad bloody luck, it's the market. But on the other hand, you know, do do we want to reduce in size and indeed actually at times in some villages eliminate these communities that live there? You know, does the indigenous population have any rights or can the market just roll through? And well, so- we're getting back to this libertarian, communitarian stretch Yes, that, that I think maybe when 
when we're young, we, the libertarian view seems quite attractive, you know, freedom and independence. But with experience, you start to see the benefits of being a part of a community. And it's, yeah, exactly. To miss them when they're, when they're not there. And it's not just about that community. Actually, you know, do we have the right to carry on, as it were, because yeah, we, we like this and people support each other and so on. But are those communities actually the building blocks of a stable and flourishing society? Well, look back in history. It, it does seem to me that stable communities that work are pretty fundamental to the whole human condition. So, again, do we really want to let that happen? Uh, and again, it, getting back to this thing of, of what systemic inquiry is, we've seen various examples over the series of how communities have come together to solve a problem uh, using the tools and techniques of deliberation and, and through engagement. But that's also what has created and reinforced the community. Hmm. So in systemic inquiry and company, accompanying investment commitments, it seems that beneath this is a question of people engaging honestly with people and yeah. being real about, on the one hand, what they're doing to the other people, and on the other hand, what's being done to them. Which... Exactly. And indeed, what they're doing to the planet. Yeah, so it's an open process. The notion, again, that it's fine for you know some company, some investor to go off and come up with some great idea and then behind closed doors without any reference to people mm-hmm. and the planet, shove it out and, and then, you know, watch whilst it takes off, whilst it has deleterious consequences and then just count the money in the bank. It's not a runner. It's not a way in which society can function. And, you know, surprise, surprise, there we are on the one hand, benefiting from some of this stuff, on the other hand, completely powerless in relation to it, completely powerless in the way in which some of it has come to govern our lives. And that all adds up to this wider sense of powerlessness, wider sense of democracy sort of has slipped away and and disappears between elections. And what are we doing here? Can I actually have any influence on this world? And again, this is where we we get, you know, you can have influence through community more so than you can as as an individual. And again, that's where the communitarian kind of view has some strength. Mm. We're reaching a point where we need to think about our very last check Mm. of your 26 principles. Okay. In transitioning from polluting to non-polluting activities, communities and companies shall be supported fairly.